kind of get our attention on for a little while. And uh, so John chapter 6, if you look at it in your Bible, you notice John chapter 6 just keeps going and going. Uh, it, it is uh, 71 verses long, and outside of Psalm 119, it is the longest chapter in the whole Bible. So uh, we're going to spend some time looking at it together, and uh, we're going to start this morning in verse 16, because last time we left off at verse 15, and if you remember, we talked about uh, Jesus, Jesus feeding the 5,000, and uh, we remember that in feeding the 5,000, that was 5,000 men, and so that was besides women and children, so we said there's about fifteen to 20,000 people being fed at this time, which is pretty unbelievable, which is the whole point, is that it's unbelievable that only God can do this, and and that's the point that Jesus is working towards. He is proving who he is. This is a sign. And remember, signs signify. I say that over and over because sometimes we forget that signs signify something. We think the sign is an end in itself. Jesus didn't come to earth to provide bread and fish for people. Jesus came to be the bread of life. And this was proving who he was. And so when we look at our text, we need to make sure that we're seeing Christ. We're seeing him for who he is and not for who we want him to be, but for who he is and for what the word is telling us. And that leads me into something I'd like to start off with today. And it's just an idea of how we are to read the Bible and personal Bible study, but then also how we're to preach the Bible, teach the Bible. There are three different terms I want to give to you today. First term is exegesis. You probably know this term. Exegesis means, this is my, uh, my summary here, but it means to pull meaning out of a text. So when we read a text in the Bible, we don't, try to come up with what the text means. Our job is to figure out what the text means. There's only one intended meaning by the author. God meant one thing, not a bunch of things. So we pull the one meaning that is found out, and we take that meaning, and then we apply that in many different ways to our lives. There's one meaning in Scripture. And our job in exegesis is to pull that meaning out of the text. What does it mean? There's a different way to understand it, though, which is wrong. It's called eisegesis. Eisegesis means to put meaning onto the text or into the text. So that means you read a text and you say, see, see, I told you that's what it means. And you can, there is an endless amount of examples that could go about this. See, I told you Jesus never called himself God. See, I told you that baptism saves you. See, I told you you can lose your salvation. See, I told you you can't lose your salvation. You can look at both sides. All I'm saying is certain texts of the scriptures mean one particular thing, and we are wrong to put meaning onto the text. That's eisegesis, bad. Make sure if you're right taking notes, which many of you are, make sure you put bad next to that one. That's bad. Okay, exegesis is good, pulling out the meaning. Eisegesis, bad, bad, bad. Worse, worse, worse is the next term. Narcissus. You ever heard this term before? It's good. Narcissus is a narcissistic exegesis. So what this means is to place myself on the text. I'm going to read a quote here. It says, There is an epidemic of narcissistic exegesis, a.k.a. narcissus, good word, infecting the churches in America today. Pastors and Bible teachers have mastered the art of allegorizing all of the characters and details of every Bible story in order to make you think the stories are about you. Every story you read in the scripture is not about you. But we have a tendency to do that. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best at summarizing the text we're about to read in a, in, a, in a narcissistic way. Here's what that might sound like. See if you've ever heard a sermon like this. We're about to read Jesus walking on the water. Okay? Jesus walks on the water. He's caught. Why don't we just read it? Look at these few verses, verses 16 through 21. We're going to read more than that today, but let's just look at it. And then I'm going to tell you how to understand it the wrong way, and then we're going to look at it the right way. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough, and because of the strong wind that was blowing... When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, and he came near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. 
And they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, here's how we might understand that text if we were practicing narcissus, which I bring this up because we are very prone to do and believe. When I find myself in the storms of life, much like the disciples were in the midst of a storm, I need to look across the waters and see Jesus. I need to gladly welcome him into my boat and the storm will cease and the waves will subside. How's that sound? I need to have eyes of faith wide open to see that Jesus is there in the midst of the storm. I need to just welcome him into my situation and stop trying to weather the storm alone. The whole point here is for me to feel better about my life. That's the point we're making in the text, if we read it that way. Have you all seen this with me? The whole point of Jesus walking on the water is so that I might feel better today. Completely wrong. That is completely wrong. Now, is it true, though, that in a situation, in a life storm, we should look to Jesus, the anchor of our soul, our hope? Is that true? That is a true principle, but that is not what the text is talking about. You get the difference here? So, what is the text talking about? What is the purpose of Jesus walking on the water? Is it so that you might feel better today when you're walking on stormy seas? No. So what does it mean? Let's look at it. Verse 16. When evening came, the disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat, and they started across the sea to Capernaum. Now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now we read, if you just look back one verse at verse 15, what had just happened. Perceiving that they were about to come and make, take him, uh, make him king by force, uh, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. We get a little better insight into the specifics of that if we look at Matthew 14. Remember, there are parallel accounts of this whole situation in the Gospels. Matthew's account tells us that immediately, this is Matthew 14, verses 22 and 23, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. So we understand Jesus told the disciples to get into the boat. We don't really get that from John's account. And he said, go to the other side while he will dismiss the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, then he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. So that's the situation, is that Jesus, he had just fed all the people, many, many, many people. And the disciples are there, and Jesus says, here's a boat. Get in the boat. I'm not going to come with you. Get in the boat and go across the sea, even though it's dark. Jesus, it's dark outside. It's okay. They're going to do what Jesus says. Go get in the boat. Go across the sea and I'm going to go up to the mountain and pray, and I'll dismiss the crowds. I'll take care of everything here. So they left Jesus there alone with 20,000 people to handle the situation, but that's what Jesus told them to do. And so this is what they do. Now it says in verse 18, The sea became rough because of a strong wind that was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Now let's talk just a second about geography. We looked at a map last week. I want you to look at another map. This is the Sea of Galilee, and there are a few little points here of interest. Because we have to remember, this was an historical event, yes? This is not a parable, but this really happened. So this is the actual location that this story occurred. This is a satellite image. So the actual location where this occurred. Um, so we have up to the northeast there, the feeding of the 5,000. You see that? Of course, that's the, uh, uh, historically, the general accepted location, okay? We can't know for 100% certainty. That's the a generally accepted location of that. Capernaum there is, is just across, not a huge stretch. But then there is Gennesaret. You see that over there? A little farther away. We know from Matthew's account that they did not cross the sea to Capernaum directly, but they were crossing the sea to Gennesaret. It says, and when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. So this is where they landed. Okay, so go to that next one, Caleb. So here's what they did. They went, the little yellow arrows, they went from the feeding of the 5,000 all the way across the sea, and they landed at Gennesaret. And then uh, the next scene, they're in Capernaum. So they made a short journey, very short journey, up to Capernaum there. So we also learned from Matthew and Mark that it was between 3 and 6 a.m. when this event happened. 
when they saw Jesus walking on the water. It was the fourth watch of the night, the last watch of the night. It is very dark outside. And it says there was a, or a wind that had made the waters rough. I want you to notice it does not say anywhere that it was stormy, but it says that there was, a, there was wind. In none of the gospel accounts does it say it was stormy. And I bring that up because we think of the story where Jesus calms the sea. Same sea, different situation. In, in, no circum, in, in no part of the text does it say, and there was a great storm. I can't tell you how many different places I look, because when I research a text, I look at a lot of different things. I even look at people that I know I'm going to disagree with because I want to see how wrong they got it. And so there, there are so many different takes on this, but a majority of them say, and it was a dark and stormy night. You know, and uh, it was windy, yes, but lightning is not crashing and thunder and, and you know, there is no indication that that's what's happening here. But instead, it's, it's windy. And so I found some footage of wind on the Sea of, uh, of, the sea of Galilee. This is actual footage of someone on a boat when it's windy on the Sea of Galilee. So take notice of that. Because even though it's, it's about sunset, you can tell the sun's going down, you can tell that um, it's, it's a little rough. It's not, it's not crazy, but it's a little rough. Now, the Sea of Galilee is only 200 feet deep, so when a wind blows it very easily agitates the water. And you can see they turn that way, it's getting a little more rough. But you can tell that there is low land and then there are high hills. Did you see that? See it right there? Low wind, high hills. Okay, thank you, Caleb. And so we can tell there, this is, this is the actual location where this was happening. This was the water. Now, it's probably that the water was a little more rough than what we just saw, probably. But it was a very common thing for wind to blow on the Sea of Galilee because you have the lowlands and you have the high hills, there is uh, dry, cool air up top, and then you have humid air down here, and when they clash, it's always windy. So it's, having wind on the sea is not an uncommon occurrence. So this is what's happening. Now, we go back to that map. It says they were about three or four miles from the shore. Do you see that in your text? Uh, now, they don't talk in terms of miles, they use something else, stadia. But um, anyway, you see a little red star there. That's about three or four miles in. So this is generally the very location that Jesus was walking on the water. He was walking on the water, and uh, they still had, you can tell, there's a little ways to go to get to Gennesaret. But you notice that when Jesus gets on the boat, what happens? They are immediately to their location. Immediately, Jesus steps on the boat and instantaneously they arrive at shore. So here's the question. Why did John put this in his gospel account? And why did he put it in his gospel account with this information and not other information? Because we know if we, we were very familiar with the story of Peter walking on the water, right? And Jesus calls Peter out onto the water. You know, this is the same story. But John doesn't tell us that part. He leaves that part out. Why? Wasn't that significant? So here's what happens is we generally take stories like this and we, we forget the context. What had just happened? Jesus fed the 5,000. We're at 20,000. We call it the feeding of the 5,000. And then Jesus gets in the boat and he walks on water, miracle one, and when he gets in the boat, they're immediately at shore, miracle two, but there aren't a bunch of people around. But John records it, why? Because he was in the boat. He has a first-hand record of this actually happening. But what is the point of this story? Is it, is the point, John's point, that when we experience storms in life, we look to Jesus, Ask him to come on the boat, welcome him in, and everything will be okay. Obviously not. So what's the point? The whole point of John chapter 6 is about the identification of Jesus Christ, mainly that Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus himself is the bread of life. So this is not an isolated story, but it occurs within a context. So we have to understand this miracle within the context of Jesus proving himself to be the bread of life. What in the world does Jesus walking on water have to do with the fact that he is the bread of life? 
Does it have anything to do with it? Well, the great thing is that, yes, it does. It has a great deal to do with the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. Mark helps us to tie the two stories together. So what we want to do is say, okay, Jesus just fed the 5,000, then he walks on water. By the way, do you see how Jesus set the situation up? He did it when it was dark so the, the crowds couldn't see it. Because if it had been a bright, nice, sunshiny day, you can see all the way to the other side. They would have been able to witness this account. But he waits till it's dark, and then he sends them out, and it's, storm, or it's, it's uh, windy um, outside, and, uh, and uh, Jesus says, go get in the boat, cross over to the other side, and I'm going to stay here by myself. So the crowds of people knew Jesus stayed by himself, and they saw the disciples get into the boat. So he set it up. And now he walks on the water. Did he have to walk on the water? Could he have just and been to the other side? Well, sure. But he did this for a reason. That's the whole point. He did this for a reason. And John records it for us for a reason. And given the fact that he leaves out Peter's account of walking on the water, we know that it, the point was something different. The point wasn't calling you to walk on water with him. The point is something else. I have uh, something that many of you have. I, I have a phone. Do you have a phone? I think you probably do. Uh, how many of you know how to use your phone? How many of you say, I have one, but I kind of hate it and I don't know how to use it? Okay, right. There's always that group. So I, I, I know how to use this somewhat well, but there are lots of things that I, I still don't know how to do. For example, I have a, a fancy little watch here that for some reason isn't working with my phone today, but um, there's things that I can't get figured out. But let's just say that we have this, and back in the day, you know, cell phones used to just be a phone and they would just make phone calls. They do much more today. But let's just say you have this device and you think all it does is make phone calls. That's pretty amazing in itself. You say, I can make a phone call from anywhere. It's unbelievable. There's, no, there's no wire anywhere on it. That's unbelievable. I can make a phone call from anywhere. I remember the first time I used a cell phone, my mom had bought one. It was a Nokia. And it was about this big. It was like a brick. And I borrowed it one day, and I used it. Man, I thought I was something that day. Using a cell phone. So we think it's pretty amazing. And then maybe you don't know all that your phone does, but a six-year-old walks up and grabs your phone. And all of a sudden, they're able to do stuff with your phone that you never even knew it was capable of. You say, wow, I never knew. They open up apps. They do face. It can take pictures. It can take videos. You can measure stuff with it. You can connect to other devices with it. You can control the lights with it. I can control the air conditioner with it. Pretty amazing. See, I think that this was the problem. And again, Mark helps us. Mark 6, 51 through 52. He got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Why? He tells us, listen. For they did not understand about the loaves. What didn't they understand? They were astonished that Jesus got into the boat because they didn't understand about the loaves. That makes my brain cramp. Why? What, what did they not understand? Here's what they didn't understand. They didn't understand what Jesus was capable of. They didn't understand from the miracle of the feeding that he was truly who he said he was, the Son of God in power. Jesus is capable of so much more than we can even think because he is the son of God. I want to read a text for you. 1 Corinthians 1.24 But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, Jesus Christ is the very power of God. Jesus walking on the water was an amazing moment for the disciples because they had not yet grasped the extent of his power and his true identity. Now, that's a pretty simple question, isn't it? Do you know who Jesus is and do you know the extent of his power? I would say, well, yeah, I think. Do you really know the extent of the power of Jesus Christ? So often, I think we don't. We forget. 
we have a moment like the disciples. We say, whoa, you're walking on water? Uh, Jesus can do a whole lot more than walk on water here. He created the water. But yet they were astonished that he was walking on it. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. The whole point here is to show that Jesus was who he said he was. And then we might see that they marvel at the fact that the one who created the water is walking on it when in, when in fact it shouldn't have astonished them at all if they knew who he truly was. If they knew the extent of his power, it shouldn't have astonished them at all. You see that? Another text here before we go on. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Now, this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. He says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Mark that mentally because they're believers. And then he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Now, pause just for a second. Paul is praying that the spirit of God would give a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Jesus Christ that their hearts might be enlightened. They may say, well, my heart has already been enlightened. I know who Jesus is. They already had faith in Jesus, yes, but they needed their hearts enlightened to his true identity and the extent of his power. That's what they needed. I'm arguing today, that's what we need. We need to better understand who Jesus is and we need to grasp the extent of the power of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 19, that you might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. There is no greater power than the power of God at work in Jesus Christ. He is the power of God. I want you to think about the power of technology. It can do pretty amazing things, can it not? The power of money. But the power of status. The power of sickness. The power of health. About the power of armies. Power of governments. The powers of kings, the powers of nations? What about the power of Satan? What about the power of sin? What about the power of death? The power of Jesus is greater. But does that truth resonate in our hearts? Is it something we genuinely believe and cling to every day? We need God continually to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him that our hearts would be enlightened to the truth of Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 22. It says, On the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread and after the Lord had given thanks. So, they, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Okay, one more map. This map shows Tiberias, so that would come, uh, be, be a, a point of interest for us. There's, that's how far away Tiberias was. So all the people there, the 15 to 20,000 people, were uh, over in this area, the feeding of the 5,000, and some boats from Tiberias came, and they said, Jesus is not here, the disciples are not here, let's yet again go run after him. Remember, they came there seeking peace and quiet. And they were met with this massive crowd. They leave again, and the crowd follows them yet again. Now, at the end of John 6, we're going to see this whole crowd disappear. They no longer follow after Jesus. But, as it is right now, they're still interested. So, they're following over to Capernaum now. And, uh, um, and they're going to meet Jesus there. And it said... Verse 24, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, they got in the boats and they went over to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? 
they noticed that Jesus uh, was up on the mountain, that there were no other boats, that they got into the boats and they went to the other side and, and there was no way for Jesus to get there, and yet he was there. Now, you would think that Jesus would say, I walked on the water, because that's pretty amazing. How did you get here? Well, there was no boat, was there? Yeah, that's right. I walked on the water, and that's how I got there. He doesn't even answer their question. He says, how did you get here? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the fill of the loaves. That's, that's his response. Misinterpreting the identity of Jesus leads to following him for the wrong reason. Isn't that exactly what just happened? They misinterpret who exactly Jesus is, and now they're following him, but yet for the wrong reason. Why are they following him? Because they have to fill all the loaves. Jesus can fill my belly. And so that's why I follow him. Jesus can heal me when I'm sick. Jesus can give me food when I'm hungry. Yeah, I'm going to stick around this guy. But they didn't see the sign that pointed to the fact that he was the Son of God. They were not following him because he was the Son of God, the Messiah. They were following him because he could fill their belly and heal them when they were sick. If this is the reason that you are following Jesus, you don't understand who he is. Jesus does not sit around. waiting for the moment when you're sick and you call on him and, and then he, he, he heals you because that's what he does. That's what the Savior does. He saves you from sickness. Saves you from poverty. Saves you from broken relationships. Saves you from any hurt you can imagine. No, that's, that's not what he came to save you from. He came to save you from the wrath of God. He is the Son of God. We need to recognize that Jesus is the very Son of God and if we recognize him for who he is, we're going to follow him not for the wrong reasons, but for the right reasons. Why do I follow after Jesus Christ? Because he and he alone is the savior of my soul. No other reason. Not because when I'm hurting, he comforts me. That's just an added grace that he gives. That's not the reason that we follow him. We follow him because he is the very son of God. If we think Jesus can provide us with all our material needs, and that's why we follow him again, that's not the right reason to follow Jesus. So we ask, who is Jesus? John wanted to answer this question immediately when he wrote his gospel, because it's the whole point of his gospel, that we might know that he's the son of God and believe in him and have eternal life. That's the reason he wrote this whole gospel account, this whole book. That's why he wrote it, so that we might know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. So he starts out in John 1, verses 1 through 4. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That's how he starts his gospel. This is who Jesus is. Now, I'm going to take all these stories of what happened, and I'm going to show you that he is who I'm saying he is. And this account is showing us that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Son of God. But all throughout this account, what do we have? People thinking that they're following Jesus when in reality, they are not. And so when times get tough, what's going to happen to those followers? They will turn away. They will turn away and prove whether or not they actually knew who Jesus was and if they were following him for the right reason. Have you known people like that in your life? Who they were all about Jesus when times were good. But when times got tough, they turned their back on God because they think God has turned his back on them. We need to remind those people of who God is and who Jesus Christ is. You need to be reminded this morning of who Jesus Christ is. He has not failed you when your life is tough. Are you hearing me say that? Because when you leave here or in this moment, you might be going through a very difficult time. God has not failed you in the difficulties of your life. 
He has given us everything and more already in Jesus Christ. If we were to lose everything, including our lives, even in this moment, we still would have everything in Christ. Our God saves us from the wrath to come. He is the savior of our soul. And this is why we follow him. And that is a comfort in those hard times of life, isn't it? This is going, this is really, this is really, mess, this life situation, do you just laugh at it sometimes? Because this is, it, it, that's what I do. This is blowing my mind so much right now. This situation is so unbelievably bad. I can't, I can't, I can't even make this stuff up. This is so bad. I don't know how I'm going to get out of it. I don't know how I got in it. But all I know is that the only thing I can count on right now is that my soul is secure in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only thing I have going for me right now. But what if you didn't know that? And what if you forget that in the moment and you think that just because you're experiencing hard times that God has forsaken you? Jesus experienced hard times. The disciples experienced hard times. And let me tell you, Jesus promised that you will experience hard times. But he said, take heart. I have overcome the world. This is good news, isn't it? This is this Savior, this Jesus, is so much better than the Jesus that says, invite me into the boat in the storms in life, and I'll help you. That Jesus, I'm going to leave there. I don't want that Jesus. I want the Jesus who says, your soul is mine. And I will never let it go. And when the wrath comes, it will bypass you because I have paid for your wrath. That's the Jesus I want. That's the real Jesus. But they were following Jesus for the wrong reason. And as I said, we will see later on in John 6 that they will abandon him. Because when they realize that this isn't what Jesus is about, they say, "Eh, I'm going to go find something different. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures into eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered him, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Here's what I want to understand uh, about these last few passages. So Jesus says, you followed me for the wrong reason. You didn't see me for who I was. You didn't notice that that was just a sign to my identity and power. But you thought that I exist to give you bread. You don't get it. And then he says, do not work for the food that perishes. So he immediately targets the fact that he provided food, and yet he said that food perishes. That's not what life is about. Life is not about food but for the food that endures to eternal life. I, 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 I listened to a little clip of R.C. Sproul on this, on, this, uh, on this particular verse, and he said, so here we see Jesus uh, telling us that um, we shouldn't work and that you have to earn your salvation because that's almost what it sounds like. Do not work for the food that perishes. Okay, I don't have to work or earn money but for the food that induced eternal life. So you should work for that. So I need to work for eternal life. I need to earn myself. Obviously, that's not what he's talking about. Which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And what does it mean that God has set his seal on him? Now, we know, because we've talked about before, these seals were, were seals basically to say, this is where this came from, right? You have a signet ring, and you would melt wax on it, or, or whatever it might be, clay, and it would harden, and, and you would... See, you would know where the message came from, right? So God has set his seal on Jesus Christ himself because he is the very word of God, right? So Jesus himself is the word of God. He attests to the truth of God. God has set his seal on him. So they say, okay, sounds great. What do we need to do to be doing the works of God? What do we need to do to do what God requires? I want to make sure that in this life I'm doing what God wants me to do. Okay, Jesus, what do we need to do? He said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. This is what God requires of you, is that you believe on Jesus Christ. Not for who you want him to be, not for who you think he is, but for who he actually is. 
I think it's... Uh, I think it's important for us to come to terms with the fact that in life we try to do our, our best. We try to live a life that to us seems like a good life. Would you all agree with me on that? We all put in our effort to make this life the best life that we can have, yes? I'm not making a heretical statement here. I'm saying that's what we do, isn't it? We try to live a good life that we have kind of what we want and what we need and what gives us joy in life. Don't we do that? And, and when stuff goes bad, we try to fix those problems, right? Jesus is saying, don't work for the food that perishes, but work for that which is eternal. Jesus is making a contrast here. He says, anything you could earn in this life is going to fade away, perish. But there is something that lasts into eternity. And that's what you should spend your time on. I'll say this. Your efforts in life prove which life is most important. This life or the life to come. What you spend your time doing proves whether or not you think this life is the important life or if the next life is the important life. 1 Timothy 4.8 While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. For it holds promise, not only for the present life, but also for the life to come. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The question I'm going to ask you today is, what is it that you're spending your time working for? Where does your energy in life go? What is important to you? What causes you anxiety when it's not going right? What is it that's on your mind right now that's, that's even been a distracting thought while I've been up here this morning? That's proving something to you, isn't it? That's what you care about. These thoughts that continue to enter your mind over and over, that's what's important to you. What should be important to us? Godliness. Godliness. Do you remember what it says in Colossians 1, 28 and 29? I'm going to read it for you. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ, and for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The end of all things is maturity in Christ. There is no greater thing to be working for. So let me tell you this bluntly. If your job is keeping you from godliness, get a different job. I can speak with some authority on that because I've actually had to do that a few times. You losing money is a better problem to have than straying off into sin. What are the kind of applications can you make to your life today? If your phone is causing you to sin... Turn it off. If social media is a problem for you that leads you, it leads your mind astray to things that are not godly, it's very easy to delete a Facebook account. Ask me how to do it. I've done it. Do it. If there is stuff in your life getting in the way of godliness, get rid of it. but I know I'll have to tell you that again because I'll have to tell myself tomorrow. If there are things leading you away from Christ, throw them away. Now there are some catches to that. You say, well, my wife is leading me into sin. You said throw it away? Hey, throw it away. Now, 
What is godliness, though? <laughs> to love your wife. So, sorry. There's principles that stop you from doing that one, right? And there are other principles that stop you from doing other things. Right? You understand what I mean. But there are things in our life that lead us into sin. And we need to get those away from us. Why? Because godliness is what matters in this life. And if there are other things taking priority of that, then those things got to go. We seek God with all of our heart. Are there things drawing your affections away from Christ this morning? Maybe you don't quite understand who he is. Maybe you don't recognize the power that is in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're following him for all the wrong reasons. I'm going to end this morning by reading out of Colossians chapter 3. I'd like for you, if you would, if you have your Bible, turn there with me. Again, this is the last place we'll go this morning, bringing it to a close here. I'm going to approach this this morning, uh, as I think I should, that a majority of us in this room are genuine believers in Jesus Christ. We have placed our faith in Him. And though we might be in a low spot today, some of you may be in a high place in your faith. Um, I, I believe most of us in this room have a genuine faith in Christ. And so when our eyes start to look at the things that perish, though, and not on the things that are eternal, things start to go terribly wrong. So I want to read a text here that reminds us of what our life should look like. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten that this life is very short, but yet it will be raised in power? Verse 5. This is where it starts to get rough. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Why? Because... There's a contrast here, right? We are to be raised with Christ who is in heaven. Therefore, set your gaze to heaven. That's where your life is. It's in heaven. This isn't life. The next life, that, that's, that's what we're looking forward to. So therefore, even though you live on earth right now, don't sit your eyes and your heart on the things on earth, but the things that are in heaven where Christ is. Therefore, since we're doing that, Here's what that looks like, he says. Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Listen to this list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. And then if we go to verse 12, it kind of changes tone, and it says, so that's what you should not be. Here's what you should be, a positive list. Put on, then, as we're putting to death the earthly stuff, we put on, then, what? The Heavenly stuff. So put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy beloved, here's what we need. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, and indeed, indeed which you were called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And listen, verse 17, last verse. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the Christian life. We have been fooled over and over, and I say this as though I'm irritated, because I am. Because we have all been fooled into thinking that Christianity is about changing your morals into the morals that Jesus had. That's incorrect. Or you may think that you come to Jesus to get rid of all your problems. Again, that's wrong. We come to Jesus because he is the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah. And he alone is the one who can save us from the wrath of God for sin. That is why we come to Jesus. And so when we experience these things, yes, we can look to Christ, but we need to know that Christ is always with us in his spirit who lives in us. And he will be with us even in these crazy storms of life. And he has never promised, don't worry, I'll calm all the storms you ever go through. That's not true. You may die in a storm. But the next life, you will be raised to eternal life forever. Let's pray. Lord, we read in your word such a great story. And uh, God, we're reminded today that, Lord, this life is... It's not about food. It's not about having the perfect relationship. It's not about having the perfect church. Because that's, that's, those things don't exist. It's not about having the perfect wardrobe, the perfect look, the perfect amount of money, the perfect house, the perfect marriage, the perfect kids. None of that stuff exists. Because there is nothing perfect but you alone. So God, I pray do a work in our hearts to detach us from all of these things in life that we love, that we shouldn't. Or all the things in life that lead us away from godliness and, and into sinfulness, or that our gaze is set on earth instead of on heaven, because we're not looking at the things that matter. But God, you matter. You are our treasure. You are our life. God, we need you to renew us, to give us a spirit of wisdom and knowledge of Jesus Christ and the, the power of the Spirit at work within us. God, do a work in us that we might believe and that our faith may be increased and that because of who Jesus is and the great power at work in us because of him, that in our hearts we might have peace. Even though outside we are wasting away, inside we are being renewed day by day. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing one last song together.